people in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I see that the extra didn't get included, so bear with me. I'm going to have to do it the old-fashioned way. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for the words of your Spirit spoken through Paul. And Lord, as we look at it, we pray that your Spirit would guide our hearts and minds, that would enlighten us and refresh our views on this passage, Father, that we may take something that would change our lives, that would help us to build or help you to build our faith, Lord. And Father, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of you and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at the first three verses that I read a moment ago. And we kind of got an introduction into Corinthians. We got an introduction into the city of Corinth where it said and how basically it was a city with a great deal of trade because people would come from Greece over to the Isthmus, the little canal-looking place, and both ports, the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, was to its north. So it was a very busy place, and as a big trading hub, sin was rampant. And it was a place of debauchery and sin of every type of nature. And uh, as I said last week, we saw in Acts where Paul looked around and became depressed. It depressed him to see what that city was like and how awful it was. But nonetheless, that didn't stop him from moving forward and sharing the gospel with those in Corinth. And we saw specifically last week that Paul used the introduction to define himself, right? He used that introduction to define who he was. And we noticed that Paul didn't define himself by the size of his bank account. He didn't define himself by what type of house he lived in. He didn't define himself by what type of car he drove or who his friends were. His family did not define him. His occupation certainly did not define him. Instead, Paul was defined by being called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Above everything else in his life, that's what defined Paul. 
And so we looked at that and we used that as an example of oftentimes we get sidetracked in trying to define ourselves. We define ourselves like the world defines itself oftentimes. But the only defining characteristic that matters in our lives, the only one that will last through all eternity, is our calling by God to follow Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have been called to be set apart from the world. And you've heard that many times. We are supposed to look like Jesus, even resemble him. I'm saying it's impossible for us to be identical to him or look identical to him, but resemble him in some way. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're to be different. We are called to act like we are children of the king instead of children of the world. We even mentioned it this morning in in Sunday school. Sometimes we don't do a very good job of that. Sometimes we don't look like or act like our father. And that's sad. When someone looks at our actions, they should look like, in some manner, or resemble Christ. And so it kind of causes us to look at ourselves and say, if a stranger sees me, hears me, watches me, am I going to look like just another person in the world, or am I going to look like Jesus? We all have room to grow and it's not an easy task is it it's much simpler to talk about it it's much simple simpler to deal with it in theoretical terms than it is to actually do it because whenever we resemble act like speak like Jesus then we're different than everybody else most everybody else that we come in contact with the world and we don't like being different It's sort of part of our fallen human nature. We want to be like everybody else. We don't like that moniker or of, he's a little different than everybody else, right? It's embarrassing sometimes. It's off-putting. We tend to like to just blend in. Jesus told us that That's not how disciples or followers of Christ, it's not what they should look like. It's not how we should act. We cannot love him and love the world at the same time. He warns us about that. If we love the world, then we do not love him. Instead, we are to love him and hate the world. Now, You can certainly enjoy his gifts, the things that he gives us to enjoy, but the problem becomes, as I say so many times, is we start enjoying his gifts so much that we worship the gifts and forget the giver. And there is a danger with that. Being in Christ and not of the world 
we are to be defined by Christ Jesus, who we are in him. That should be our defining characteristic more than anything else in this world. Otherwise, we're just sort of succumbing to the world's ideas, the way the world thinks people should be defined. And that clearly was not how Paul defined himself. That's what Paul meant whenever he was teaching us. Paul called to be an apostle by the will of God. That takes us to verse 4, where we pick up this morning. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul's still in his introductory remarks. He is still opening his letter. We must resist the hesitation to see this introduction and just kind of gloss over it. Say, well, he's just saying hello to everybody. It's just sort of a greeting. There's no really, there's not much meat to it. But I hesitate with that and I push back a little bit at that suggestion. There's a whole lot of meat in this introduction. And so that's why we pump the brakes a little bit, slow down and dig through it and see what the Holy Spirit reveals out of these introductory passages. Paul tells them that he gives thanks thanks to God always for them. Always. Can you imagine Paul's prayer list? Can you imagine how long it took Paul to finish a prayer? You can go through the letters and you can see how many churches, and not to name the individuals in those churches, that Paul is praying for always. Every day, all the time, every single church and the leaders that he knew he was praying for, we spend our brief moments oftentimes praying for those that are close physically, right? Our family, friends, they got to be good friends though, right? Paul wasn't necessarily limited at all to praying for those in his inner circle. He was praying for those in his spiritual circle because, quite honestly, those are the ones he's worried about spending eternity with. That was the focus of his prayer life. All of these churches that he helped to to start, that he would go back and he prayed for them all the time. He prayed for the leaders. He prayed for the individuals. He prayed for the different situations in those churches, whether it was unity or whatever the case might have been. He spent so much time praying for the cause of Christ, which was his church. And I think we can learn a lot from that, that we are to pray for the church Each individual in the church, other leaders in the church, the church of Christ in the the city, the county, the state, all over the world, as Paul did. So notice that Paul didn't give thanks to the people, 
But he gave thanks to God always for them. Wasn't necessarily for them, though. What was it for? It was for the grace. It was for the grace. It wasn't for their faith. It wasn't for the fact that they believed. It was for the grace that God gave them in Christ Jesus. Now, I think the distinction is there for a reason. And we're going to kind of see it play out as we go through this. It actually fits the theme of this entire passage. Paul does a wonderful job of setting up the sovereignty of God and salvation in these passages, and we're going to see it as we go through them. Clearly, there were many people in this church who were believers, who were faith-filled believers in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Yet he wanted them to understand that it wasn't because of something that they did. That the only reason they believed was because of the grace that God bestowed upon them through Christ Jesus. He wanted to strip them of any sense of entitlement that they had for eternal life. And we've discussed this many times and I spoke about it many, many times. If that is not the proper theology, then we always run the risk of having a sense of entitlement for our salvation. But whenever all sense of entitlement is stripped away, I know that I don't deserve salvation, that it's not of me, that it's not of anything that I chose to do, that it was God shining His grace through Jesus Christ upon me, leaning me in that direction, all glory goes to Him. 100% of all glory goes to God. And that was the point that Paul wanted to give these folks. He wanted them to start out knowing that, yes, you're believers. I'm grateful that you're believers. But I thank God that he gave you the grace to believe. And so he's pointing all glory back to God. He wanted them to understand that salvation wasn't meritorious. And it wasn't based upon anything that they did. It was based upon Christ and 100% of what he did for them. Verse 5. In that every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So you were made rich, you were enriched. And what exactly is the point here? He's speaking about or writing about them being rich spiritually. That you were made rich spiritually in all speech and knowledge. That's a little obtuse, a little strange, but it's repeated many times throughout, and I didn't add this passages in here, but it's, it's repeated many times throughout the New Testament. That these folks at Corinth were made rich in all speech and all knowledge. You can actually use this as a test of faith, can't you? You see that? If you are not rich in speech and knowledge, then you don't know Christ. Then you don't know Christ. When we are Christ's, our speech changes and our knowledge changes. What we talk about changes and the way we think changes as well. 
If that is not happening, then that's the test in verse 5. You don't know Christ. If your speech and knowledge does not change, then quite frankly, you're not a Christian. When we know Jesus, we talk about him. And our wisdom is of God and not of the world. I'll show you what I mean. We'll jump down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So we preach, we talk, we share Jesus. And not only do we share Jesus, but it is salvation to us. But it's a stumbling block. The wisdom, the thinking, the knowledge is not there to the Jews or to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who are called, to those who know Jesus, out of everybody, regardless of what your nationality is or skin color or gender, whatever, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you see how speech and knowledge changes with Jesus. You share Jesus. You give Jesus glory for things that happen, for answering prayers. You talk about him. And the wisdom of God is no longer folly, is no longer silly, is no longer a stumbling block. In fact, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What you once thought about salvation as being foolish and silly, you now see the wisdom of it all. And you see the world's wisdom as being foolish and silly. Our speech changes and our knowledge changes. Verses 5, 6, and 7 kind of work together. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says in 5 and 6 that our speech and our knowledge changes when we are in Christ Jesus. And it continues to change, right? That's the point and that's where we need, we're going to kind of dive into this idea here. Hopefully, your speech and your knowledge has changed a lot from the time you first knew Jesus. And it continues changing and growing as we walk with him. Sort of the transformation or sanctification of a believer. So, verse 6, it continues to change and we walk into verse 7. That we're not lacking in any gift. So, God is taking us as I say so often, from one degree of glory to the next, and it's directly directly related to verse 7. So that we're not lacking in any gift. And this is the the reason he does it. As our speech and knowledge grow richer and deeper and greater, so do our spiritual gifts. So do our spiritual gifts. We get better at exercising them. We become better stewards of what God gives us to use for the glorification of himself and for the building up of his church. Our spiritual gifts, 
are honed. Sort of like anything else that we practice day after day, we get better and better and better. Only this one is through and with the working of the Holy Spirit. So you may ask, why did Paul throw in gifts here? Why, why is he, what's he doing? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because the speech and the knowledge is changing, and now he's gone to gifts and don't really understand where he's going, don't really understand what he means here. Well, we're going to go through spiritual gifts. I'm warning you. Chapter 12, we're going to, 13, we're going to get right in the middle of it, but that's probably years from now. So... I'm not going to dive in now. I'm not going to dive into them now. He has, Paul has much to say about spiritual gifts. It's important to know for now that God gives every one of us as a believer a gift, a spiritual gift, maybe multiple, but he gives them to each one of us. And as you will see, whenever we get to chapters 12 and 13 and in that area, gifts primary use is to be used for the edification of the church, not the individual. And you're going to see Paul hammer on that, especially whenever we talk about tongues. He's going to say gifts are to be used for the edification of the church. And you're going to see that the church of Corinth weren't doing that. They were doing it to edify themselves. But God gives us gifts to edify each other in the church. End of story. We're all to use our gifts for that purpose. When we use our gifts, others grow. That's why it's so important that we use them. And I want to hover on this for a little bit because this is critical in a church situation. We tend to think, well, I'm not going to, whatever, use my gift. I don't feel like using my gift. When you do that, or when I do that, or when we do that, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about other people. That gift is not given to me for me. That gift is given to me for you. So if I neglect my gift, who suffers? You do. If you neglect your gift, who suffers? We do. And so I hope you can see this idea and notion of gifts a little bit differently. Because so many times we think it's about us. It's I'm going to make the choice to do this or exercise this or not do this or exercise this. And that's fine. You can make that choice. But when you do it, you're affecting other people. Because the gifts are given for the edification of each other. And when we neglect our gifts, other people suffer. We have to remember that. So he gives us gifts to edify the church. Our speech and our knowledge knowledge changes. It grows. It gets deeper and richer. So that our gifts aren't lacking. So that they become better. And we become better at exercise them. And we do this while what? While we're waiting for the revealing of Lord Jesus. We edify each other 
while we wait for Christ to return. And God chose as a way of doing that to give us all gifts. So a perfectly healthy and pure church, everybody's using their gifts and everybody's being exercised. Everybody is being built up and edified and it's growing. And then we go to verse 8. Who will sustain you. So we're building up to verse 8. So these gifts that we're using, that we're exercising, that we're getting better at using, what does that do through Jesus? It sustains us to the end. So if we don't use our gifts, it is really difficult to get to the end. If you don't exercise your gift you make my ability to get to the end harder. If I don't exercise my gift, I'm making your ability to get to the end harder and more difficult. So we are called by the will of God, just like Paul did, maybe not to be an apostle, but clearly to be a disciple. And we are called by the will of God and we are sustained by Him also. He will hold me fast. We are sustained by Him also. There are folks out there, and I quite frankly, in a confessional, will tell you that I used to be one of them, are totally wrong-headed about the security of salvation, about eternal security. They believe that once you are saved, then you are secure eternally, and you can walk away and renounce the faith, and you die, and you're good. I'm telling you, that's a wrong-headed view of eternal security. It's a wrong way of thinking about God keeping us. Let's look at a few passages that indicate otherwise. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Clearly, there's an indication here that you've got to make it to the end, because if you don't make it to the end, you believed in vain. It's a clear admonition not to lose faith, but to hold fast. And if you renounce that faith, then you believed in vain for a period of time. Colossians 1.23 If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, a warning an admonition. You've got to make it to the finish line. You've got to hold fast. Be steadfast. You say, well, that's Paul. Well, here's Jesus. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we have, and there's many more. I just plucked out three. 
So we have a situation here where I hope you can understand and see that for those that believe that I ask Christ into my heart, I ask him to forgive me of my sins, I'm good to go, I'm going to walk away. If I don't believe, I'm still there because I'm secure. That's wrong! That's wrong. That's dangerous. And that is eternally scary. That's the wrong view of security of salvation. Who sustains us? We see it here. Christ sustains us. He doesn't leave us to our own devices and wring his hands and say, I sure hope they keep believing. It's not what he does. I'll assure you that the only way that I have a hope of making it to the end is by the sustaining power of Jesus Christ working in my life. It is God that sustains us. And so, to kind of put what we've been talking about together here, so when I am struggling spiritually and I'm in that valley and one of you all exercise your gift, whatever it may be, and it picks me up. And it sustains me and it encourages me and it gives me the strength to go to the next day. That's how God sustains us in and through our gifts. That's how we are assured of our salvation. The assurance of a believer, the eternal security of a believer is not that God will save us if we stop believing, but that God will sustain us not to stop believing. I hope you can see the difference because it is a big difference. Eternal security, according to the Bible, is not that God will save us if we stop believing, but that God will sustain us to not stop believing. We all feel like we can walk away from this in the next five minutes, right? We feel that way. And if left to your own devices, you will. But it is God who is working to sustain each one of us so that we not walk away. Now, there are times when people for a short period, do walk away, but God's sustaining power is there, and they come back. If they don't come back, they never were there to begin with. You say, well, why do you believe that? I believe that because of this passage. Here we see how it all plays out, how it all works. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 8 just told us that God sustains us, and, he does, and one way that he does so is by the exercising of our gifts for each other. He is going to sustain us. Why? Why is he going to sustain us? Because he is faithful. He's faithful. What is he faithful to? He is faithful, or why is he faithful? He is faithful because he has called us into fellowship with Jesus. And if he calls us, he's going to make sure that we get there. 
He's not going to call us and then leave it up to ourselves to try to get there. Because honestly, if he calls us and leaves it up to me to try to get there and I get there, again, what's the first thing I'm going to do when I get there? Look at this guy. Look what I did. Look, look at how many difficult situations that I navigated and I was able to overcome and I fought that sin. And, and I did. It gives God no glory and gives this guy all kind of glory. God didn't play that way. But there is such great joy in this passage that I don't have to worry about tomorrow, about what I might do or what might happen to my faith, because God is faithful. He called me into fellowship with His Son, and because He called me into fellowship with His Son, He's going to make sure I get there. There is beauty in this passage. There is comfort in this passage. There is so much joy in this passage, and I hope that you all can see it. You worry about what's going to happen later in your life. You worry about death. You worry about different situations. We should not because he called us and he's going to take us there. How he's going to do it, I don't know. It's way beyond my, above my pay grade. I just know he's faithful. And it's all about trusting in him to get us there, to carry us there. And that's the beauty of this passage of knowing we're not alone. We're not alone in a variety of reasons. One of the ways that he gets us there, one of the big ways that he's showing us in this passage that he gets us there is that by us all working together and exercising our gifts that encourages each other at just the right moment when we're thinking, man, I don't know if it's worth it. Man, I don't know if I can deal with this anymore. Man, I don't know, whatever. If we're all exercising our gifts, then that person's going to get edified, and that doubt, that frustration, is going to be gone. That's how God works in that church, in our church, to make sure that we all make it to the end, to make sure that we hit that finish line that He's called us to direct our lives towards. He is faithful. And he keeps his, keeps his promises, and he'll drag us out of the valley every time we hit the bottom of it. There may be moments like we think that there's no end to the depths of that valley. But he's going to pull us out. He's going to get us to the end. He's not going to throw us to the wolves. We're there for each other, and ultimately, he's there for us. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, I honestly know of no greater comforting words than you will hold us fast than you the creator and finisher of our faith are there in the glorious moments when we feel so close to you but you're also there in those moments when we're frustrated when we're tired when we feel like our faith is just in vain that you encourage us to encourage each other by exercising our gifts father so that we all know and understand that we're in this together and that you are faithful, that you're going to get us to that end point. Let us walk our Christian walk with that in our minds. Let us be comforted by that this morning, Father. And may you be glorified in all that we do and say. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.